Okay. Today, my guest is Professor Andy Edward Snyder. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Ted as a person, Professor Snyder is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Snyder is an AIB fellow. He is an expert on industrial organization, antitrust economics, uh, law and economics, and financial institutions. He served as the Dean at Yale between 2011 and 19. And prior to that, uh, he was the Dean at University of Chicago Full School of Business and at University of Virginia. He was published extensively in top discipline journals and frequently his work appeared in popular press, in national and international newspapers, magazines, TV, and radio outlets. He also appeared as an expert and gave testimonies uh, to various lit litigations. Thank you, Ted, for joining us. Thank you. So uh, how did it all begin? What did you want to become when you were a child? Well, I think when I was a very little child, I wanted to be a cowboy. <laughs> and then, then uh, it evolved to wanting to be a geologist, hmm. and then a politician, and then a lawyer. And then at some point, I figured out I loved economics. Where, where did you grow up? I moved around a lot, uh, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and Maine. And uh, I still have family in Maine. Hmm. From being a cowboy and a politician and a lawyer, and the uh, distance between that and the deanship at Virginia and Yale and where else? Uh, uh, Chicago, Chicago, University of Chicago. Uh, how did you choose academia? Yeah, that, that was that's a good question. I I I did fall in love with economics. I I, I did feel, however, ambivalently about academics versus alternative careers, both public service and and private enterprise. But I ended up uh, continuing on with academics, and I'm not exactly sure why. I I just love the uh, the process of evaluating ideas and building up human capital. I think I'm an inherent uh, skeptic in some ways. So I, I like to be clear about what people are saying and why. So I think it, it was a match. Uh, and certainly at this stage of my career, when I'm no longer a dean, I really feel privileged to be in the academic environment and being being able to teach and conduct research. And it may be a little bit late, but I'm enjoying it. It's never late. So uh, something that is not on your CV uh, that people might find interesting about you. Well, I I, um, I really believe in in uh, the democratization of education. I'm concerned about the fact that uh, in the U.S. we have such uneven 
um, education from K through 12. Uh, I'm concerned about the fact that we have uneven access to education. And, and um, probably my most um, important uh, charity is, a, is an entity that uh, help, helps kids um, with uh, reading. And uh, you know, I, I just think that if it's, it's sad, I think if, if we have uh, younger people in societies that just can't get to that essential level of, of skill. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, you know, we end up uh, as a society just missing out on, on a lot of human capital. So how much of your time is dedicated to these char- uh, charity events? Not much. I mainly write checks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And when you say uneven uh, opportunities, what do you mean? Well, actually, it's underscored by the pandemic, as as many people know, the the so-called education gap between underrepresented U.S. minorities and, and others um, has has widened after in the previous years it had shrunk a fair amount but now we've we've given up most of those gains okay so that that education gap uh, represents in practice that a large number of third graders are are not reading it at so called um their grade level and if you wait until the 5th grade or 7th grade it, it becomes increasingly difficult not impossible for them to catch up Actually, I just noticed it. It is still the uh, case for undergrads. And uh, these are seniors graduating almost in a couple of weeks. Uh, They are having difficulty. And they were two, two and a half years during the pandemic. They were used to watching videos in two minute segments. They're having difficulty reading a chapter. So uh, we'll talk about education. we sound a little bit old, I think, uh, wishing uh, <laughs> wishing that the world would go back to a uh, uh, time when we had more int- attention span. <laughs> Actually, it is true. Uh, every two weeks, I ask my students uh, for feedback about what to improve in the class. And uh, just before Thanksgiving, they said uh, it would help if I recorded two-minute segments on each chapter. <laughs> So uh, that's kind of uh, interesting. I mean, I don't know if I if I can summarize everything in two minute segments, and if the outcome would be the same. But uh, this is where where we're headed right now. So, so I uh, think you know I, I go through the same thing, and I think that's it's relevant for anybody listening to try to figure out how to best uh, connect and teach and. Um, I've resisted PowerPoint, and I, um, but I do what I do what uh, a lot of people do. I write up uh, short summaries of key topics, and even one-page summaries sometimes don't get read um, sure. by some sure. students. I have some students who are, you know, working really hard and dive in, but uh, education is more challenging because of technology, no doubt. Sure. If you could do it all over again, and uh, or maybe uh, 
revisit some of the things that you haven't done. Uh, what's the second best career path for you? What would you do? I think I would have tried politics. Hmm. And then I would have probably done pretty well until recently. <laughs> I, I think I think the political environment in the US now is terrible. Sure. Um, regrets, any regrets in life? Well, um, on the professional side, I would just say no. I mean, I really am fortunate. I had great education at Chicago. I didn't know that I was going to become a dean, but then I did, and I enjoyed that process. I liked institution building. Uh, it was exciting, and now I'm really fortunate to have this end of my career phase when I get to teach and do research and hopefully help out. Um, so I don't have any regrets. Okay. And <clears throat> what are you most proud of? Well, I, I think that uh, in terms of identifiable accomplishments, things that people can see and, and, and say, you know, this happened at, at a certain point in time. One of the things I'm most proud of is the start of the, the network of top business schools that we, we developed and launched in uh, spring of 2012. Um, just this week, we had our, I think it's the 23rd deans and directors meeting of the Global Network for Advanced Management. Uh, so I was the founder, and uh, it's it's a it's a consortium. And I, I the one reason why I'm proud of it is that we've been able to to find uh, programs that have durable. Uh, value for the schools. Um, so the idea of Global Network Weeks where faculty stay at home, they don't take the students around the world, but instead they teach at their home institution and then schools that participate in that particular week, they get choice. And where they end up going, um, you know, it, it, it it ends up being a very diverse environment when they get there. Uh, they learn from other faculty. So that's an example of a program that the network uh, developed and it's very popular, but especially in a world where we've got rising tensions and we've got SplinterNet and US versus China and we've got the war in Ukraine and conflict. How did you come up world. with this idea? Well, I, I I had it before I came to Yale, and um, you know, I'd been involved in um, management education for a long time. And Chicago, where I had left, had uh, so-called greenfield investments, campuses, uh, one in Asia, one in Europe, and that model was good. I I had observed, of course, uh, Columbia and LBS with their partnership model, uh, Kellogg. Uh, HKUST with its partnership model, but social models had moved to networks, business models had moved to networks, and it seemed like a, a, a an untried but promising 
model, especially in the context of Yale, which had a big brand name, nice umbrella under which we could uh, operate. But also from the point of view of the School of Management, the School of Management was not heavily invested in global programs. So I had close to a so-called clean sheet of paper. So the network came together very quickly and efficiently. And uh, so now we're you know, well, in, well into our second decade. What was the biggest challenge when you were putting it for the first time, Mary, pulling all these uh, connections? Inviting people wasn't hard. Getting them to say yes wasn't hard. Dealing with the inevitable uh, variance in how much effort schools could put in, uh, that over time, I think, was a, a big challenge. Um, but I wouldn't put it in the category of uh, a, a serious or, or kind of existential challenge. It was just something, how did we, how did we get more buy-in and more consistent involvement over time? And we were able to do that through a process that um, was developed around renewals of membership and evaluation and feedback. And that, that was a, uh, a real joy, though, to address that issue and, and do so, I think, in a way that was pretty <clears throat> satisfying. Is this a replicable model? Uh, can it be replicated and expanded? Uh, is it what you see? I, 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 it's a great question. And uh, those of us who were involved from the beginning, we, we sort of expected that there would be uh, rival networks and uh, more of them. Uh, in fact, I think it's it's there are consortiums for particular purposes, but to have a more open-ended consortium involving schools from really all over the world has been uh, it's it's been a bit surprising that it hasn't been um, imitated to to a greater extent. About. Uh... IB research or global education. <clears throat> What do you see the big challenges uh, over the next five, 10 years? Well, first of all, I think the, the demand is huge. I mean, um, the, the demand for insights right now into geopolitics is very strong. The demand for insights into how companies that are successful in one line of business should can migrate that line of business to other geographies, that's really that, fundamental. That, uh, let me steer you in a different direction. Say you're the dean again, and you went back to deanship and you have uh, to allocate some resources between departments to make a choice between where to go, which uh, direction that the school, uh, school should be taking. Uh, and you're thinking, should I give money to marketing, to entrepreneurship, to strategy, to IB, to finance, to economics? Uh, and within that, and then you're thinking about let's hire new people, uh, we need more, political science people with ties to uh, business, uh, et cetera, or historians, 
who can basically start uh, doing some sort of an accounting uh, of what has uh, happened, transpired. So what do you see as an educator that the next five to 10 years uh, is going to look like, given all these populism, uh, nationalism, uh, SDG thing sprouting up uh, all around the place, uh, outcome equality or inequality that you started mentioning earlier. Uh, things are changing, processes are changing, perspectives are changing, priorities are changing. So what, what is your take as an educator uh, and a planner? Uh, on well, if I could extend the extend the scenario you just described and suppose that uh, you gave you gave the network uh five million dollars mm. and uh we would get the steering committee together and uh, talk about how to deploy your your generous support the thing I would advocate for is a move towards sort of bench social science. And let, let me explain. You know, within social science, we've seen this move towards more co-authored, multi-authored uh, papers. When we actually look at science, bench science, we see that on steroids. Um, you have lots of people working to uh, do study after study after study, um, 10, 15 authors. I think one of the things that we see, not just in IB research, but I see it in finance and accounting and marketing and so forth, there are just too many one-offs. And, and if, we could do, if we could move towards a model where we, we develop, say, uh, something that is testable. And I'm trying to avoid answering your question in terms of subject matter and more focus on method. Rather than have one team look at this phenomenon in Southeast Asia, have five teams do it. One in Southeast Asia, one in Europe, one in Africa, one in India, one in the US, et cetera, Latin America. And, and have a common metho methodology, have common research objectives, but we benefit from the, uh, you know, fundamentally uh, the ability to compare and contrast across regions. So I think moving towards a more complicated uh, research model where uh, we, we have teams in place that are distributed around the world I think that would be cool. Um, I think it would. I think it could be pathbreaking, actually. How come? <clears throat> so I'm applying to NSF, and uh, it's loose. They don't really have a topic unless it is a you know one of these topical areas. They don't really have a topic. Uh, it's entirely up to you, and the process is very slow. But there's Minerva. Minerva is for the competitiveness of the American enterprise, right? And <clears throat> uh, it is uh, connected to the defense industry. The U.S. Uh, government has a strong stake in Minerva. But they have 
very clear identifiable goals and topics. Uh, who's going to come up with a topic to say, oh, why don't we do such and such in in uh, in, in this topic, whatever the topical area is, and then who is going to allocate these four or five uh, different teams to execute the, uh, the analysis, the, the, the study. There must be some sort of uh, overseer, uh, something to allocate. Who's going to be there? Well, I think it does, I think your question is right on target. I mean, how, how, does it, how could this come about? And, you know, we have inertia in the way we do things now, both the funders and the way co-authors organize themselves. But we have to recognize that there's a, a missed opportunity, at least that's my view, and that we do end up with, with authors who like to work together. You know, it's the old joke about, you know, joining, I wouldn't join a club that would have me as a member, but, you know, you, you, <laughs> you match yourselves up and you do your research and the result is something that's very good, and and but it's ultimately limited by by geography um, or sectors, and it's 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 maybe unfair to call it a one-off, but I'm doing that rhetorically. And what we're missing is a chance to have much more systematic research. Uh, how do we get this breakthrough? I, I don't know. I think there are uh, organizational costs and doing that, but whoever gets there first, I think it's gonna be, and I do think it'll happen um, because we have some, some uh, academic enterprises now that are, are positioned where they could do it. Um, and if they do, I think it'll just yield I mean, we want to trust research. We want to have confidence in it. We, we, we want to understand differences and commonalities. And I, I, mean, think, yeah, I, I think getting there, if we get there and have some examples, people will go, oh, this is good. I mean, right now you're talking about something at this level. And when you said uh, trust research, I'm thinking what kind of research is replicable in, in, in some of the journals? Uh, we don't even have, even if you have the same data, once you replicate it, the outcomes are different. So we don't really trust that thing. So is it an issue of incentives? Are you suggesting something about incentivizing institutions to steer them to the same channel? Well, your your point about incentives is right. I mean, this such this kind of research would require more upfront organizational effort and maybe longer timeline. And the incentives are, of course, to do high quality research within time periods that uh, allow for especially younger people to get rewarded with promotions. So I think I think that's another. It's a it's a good point. It's 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 definitely a barrier. But I mean, my field, like, say I'm studying vertical integration in the electronic vehicle industry. I could I could study 
um, what Tesla is doing. Um, but wouldn't it be great to have somebody else studying with real deep knowledge of, of the Chinese EV market, what, what's happening in China? Um, and same thing with the with the German vehicle manufacturers. I, I just think we're missing, and that's not a great example. I uh, I bet you the top IB scholars could come up with far better ones, but uh, I think we're missing opportunities. Um, I would really like to see this happen, though. Well, what you're saying sounds more plausible for Europeans with their European system, especially with their governance and uh, maybe even CERN uh, in Switzerland. They they were almost focused on that one. But isn't that more for uh, uh, more physical sciences, for biology, for chemistry, for physics, and for social sciences, isn't that a limitation? Uh, I mean, all these one-off papers uh, make or break a person's career, right? Uh, for tenure and for promotion. Um, yeah, I think you put your finger on it. I mean, that's that's why it hasn't happened. But we're getting closer with big data, bigger teams. Um, bench social science could could happen. Okay. Uh, about advice, uh, what was the best advice you received when you were going through this process as a PhD student? A uh, few things come to mind. One is find people with whom you, you're comfortable and you don't worry about questions that you ask. You know, you, you don't want to worry about if the so-called marginal question is going to make you sound stupid or smart. Um, so you have to have people with whom you're comfortable. Who was your advisor? Um, Eddie Lazier. Eddie Lazier, at, okay who passed away um, not too long ago. And, uh, and then I, my approach, I try to keep a sense of humor. <laughs> and, um, and the third thing I did, which may sound very um, bizarre, is that um, once I started actually as a, an assistant professor, I had a I had my actual CV, and then I did a projection of what I wanted my CV to be. And and um, you know that was that was aspirational. So like you set goals for yourself. Is is that what you said? Like I'm going to have two AEAs uh, conferences and two AERs in one year. Is that what you said? Well, since I never got an AER, I guess I can't say that. But... <laughs> But you know, no, but, but I wanted to um, move papers from working papers to submission. So, mm -hmm. I, and then I wanted the papers that had been submitted to be published. So I would, I would take my current beta and change it to make it look like where I wanted to, wanted it to be a year hence. <clears throat> 
maybe 20 years ago, I went to this uh, AEA conference. The panel was uh, uh, Gibson, Williamson, George Baker. And there was a, one, one more big one. Uh, and George Baker got up, he was discussing a paper and Williamson was always smart and he was just like laser pointed, pre precise in his uh, speech. But George Baker got up and said, you know what, uh, I read this paper, it's promising. I got the same data, I downloaded the data, I ran the test again, I did these uh, things in addition to what this person has done. For a conference paper, I'm saying, this is too much effort. For this five minutes of, uh, maybe not 10, ten, ten minutes of, uh, critique or support of a paper in a conference, you have spent maybe uh, six months doing the empirical work. And what kind of a person does this? This is uh, beyond uh, normal academia. This, this person must be, obviously this is George Baker, so obviously he's, he's superior. But uh, is there something that you have seen in your past uh, that now when you're uh, thinking about it, that tells you if you had known such and such trick at the time, it would have saved you so much time, pain and agony over uh, over your career? No. Hmm. No, uh, no tricks. Okay. You know, we all eat, eat our humble pie when it comes to academic research, things don't work out. We take on too much. The results can't be published. We get scooped. Uh, we we get a bad draw in terms of referee. I think it's, I think it's just, it's a hard business. <laughs> That's why the sense of humor helps. So it happens to you too. Okay, so that was a good note for myself. Um, as a dean. Uh, what are some of the mistakes that you see junior faculty and mid-career people make? Uh, what would number, you say number the top one three mistake, things not to do? Number one mistake that uh, junior faculty make um, is that they don't identify their audience. This is not a very complicated piece when you think about it. I mean, there's a lot of substance behind the issue. But in practice, when you go up for you know promotion to associate with or without tenure, and you go up for promotion to full professor, or you want to move up the non-tenure track from lecturer to senior lecturer, the process involves a relatively small number of outside reviewers. Don't wait until your sixth year to think about who's on your list. That's the number one mistake. You know, if you need if you need 15, come up with a list of 30 and cultivate them. Try to get them to read your papers. You may end up ticking some of them off. They may not like your work. So you go from 30 down to 15. But you gotta you you have to think about your audience. 
with career management, uh, who teaches that? I think we, it's very hard to give us advice as individuals. I mean, a lot of us went into academics because we wanted to think for ourselves. <laughs> and we didn't want, we don't want to be told, well, you're taking on too much. You ought to try this topic or give up on that paper. It's not going to work. You know, that's not who we are. So I think it's a very good point. Career mm -hmm. management oftentimes means you're, ultimately it's your own responsibility. That said, I think, again, what younger people can do, it doesn't hurt to ask for advice. You don't have to follow it. But I, I think asking for advice is a good thing. Thank you. Ted, last question. Uh, what's the question that I should have asked you about Evans? Well, today is uh, um, a day when we have uh, multiple World Cup matches, so we could talk about that. But no, I... Um, you know, just being part of a, this community of scholars around the world associated with AIB, just terrific. And, um, you know, the world is, is just so divergent now and uh, dissonant. And I think having people to talk to around the world, it's just so important and so valuable to me and it's uh, been a pleasure to to chat with you and i apologize for maybe not being clear on some things but uh, i really enjoyed uh, our conversation so thank you thank you same here i enjoyed it i learned a lot i'm sure the audience will agree with me thank you Ted. bye